And as you are, let's pray together. God, our hearts are given to praise of you this morning. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, you bring us to a place where we're mindful of your goodness. We're mindful of your grace. We're mindful of your mercy. And we sing praise. But God, we also this morning are people who are broken and who are in need. And so we are reminded by your spirit that you are sufficient, that you are powerful, that you are enough even in our places of need. And so I know in this room and as a result of those associated with those in this room that there are people on our minds and our hearts streaming today that, that are broken. There's sickness in our world. We pray for healing. Uh, there's brokenness emotionally in our world. We pray for stability. There's brokenness racially in our country. We ask for unity. God, even within our churches, there is divisiveness. We pray, God, that as you have prayed, that we would be one in you. And maybe even today, God, there's recognition that spiritually we are lacking. We don't know what it is to have a relationship with you, or we know and yet we've been mm, apathetic in being able to chase after that relationship. And so, God, for us, would you um, be the wind that fans our flame, even this morning? We're grateful for your power that indeed sustains us, cares for us, nurtures us. We pray that power even to those whom we may not know personally. We think of uh, the leaders in our community, the leaders in our county, for the leaders in our state, the leaders of our nation, and literally the leaders around the world. God, that you would reveal yourself to them. Grant them wisdom. Uh, grant them peace. Grant them a Christ-like heart and mind and tongue that indeed, God, today in our nation and around our world, we might indeed by your Spirit be driven to you. That's a big prayer. But God, we know that indeed you are a big God doing all things for your glory. Would you indeed help us as Covenant Church, help us as your church, to do our part in proclaiming you as king. And may that even be so today as we come to your word. Not my words, God, but your meditations upon my heart that are transferred today. And may it not even be anything that I say that sticks, but that which you proclaim that lasts forever. As we come to your holy word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If uh, you are friends with my wife on Facebook, then you have had the great opportunity to see the cuteness of our granddaughters. Right? 
Um, there's, and if you haven't, there are several thousand pictures there that you could probably uh, take a look at. And as I was approaching our text this morning of Acts 2, 42 through 47, I actually uh, thought of our middle granddaughter. There she is. Cuteness and all that she is, right? Uh, this is Selah. And uh, Selah is a very expressive young lady as you can tell by her formality, right? Uh, and uh, she loves to come up with these really catchy uh, phrases that she probably learns from her mom and dad, but then repeats in all the cuteness in the world. And as I came to Acts 2:42 through 47, I was mindful of one of her early sayings that she would do. She would kind of take that very cute uh, head cocket, raise her eyebrows and go, what? What? Now, what's interesting is that at two, almost three, that's cute and everybody laughs. When she's 12 and does that, she'll be grounded for a week, right? Uh, that, 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 but at two, almost three, she, she can do that. And, and the reason I thought is because the text that we have this morning is worthy of a what? Right? And, and the goal of the text this morning is that the world might see us as his church and go, what? There's the sermon in a sentence this morning, right? You ready? You ready for that? If we are honest about our passage this morning, and we read it as it might have happened in today's world, we might indeed wrinkle up our faces, cock our heads to one side with an amazement, say, what? It's actually the end of two chapters of astounding accounts that elicit all kinds of W words. We've reviewed these in weeks gone by. There is the whoop of Jesus' ascension, right? We saw that in Acts chapter 1. The disciples gathered together and Jesus said, See ya, out of here, take it away, right? The whoop of Jesus' ascension. The wow of Pentecost when the, the tongues of flames came upon their head, right? And they spoke in languages which were not their own. We sat back and said, well, that is amazing. And then there was the wham of Peter's sermon at Pentecost when he was accused of being drunk early in the morning. And he goes, no, like, this is what God is doing. This is the spirit of the living God being poured out on us. And as we get to the end of that sermon and we see that 3,000 people were added to the number that day, we directly go into chapter 2, and sometimes it's bad when we have chapter divisions because we've made this division of the end of 1 and the beginning of 2 when really the end of 2 is connected to this movement that is happening among God's church, his early church. And so this morning we move to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and we see the what of the description of the church. I have bad news and good news with regard to this text this morning. The bad news is it's going to take me a really long time to preach it. The good news is we're going to do that over three weeks. All right? Thank Jim's clapping. That was good. Yes. Right? Uh, so uh, we, we will spend some time over the next three weeks in this text because it is that deserving of it. it I want you to see the amazement in it. So as we turn there this morning, let me, uh, I didn't preach last week, so I want to make sure you're still with me. Who wrote the book of Acts? There's mutterings. I hear somewhat Luke. Yes. Uh, Luke, would you say Luke with me? One, two, three. Thank you. Luke, and he wrote to whom? 
Theophilus, right? So there's this uh, Gentile guy that he writes to. Uh, Luke is a Gentile himself, and, and through Theophilus, who's a man of power and resources uh, and, uh, and with all kinds of influence, he, he writes really to all Gentiles, but he's telling the story directly to Theophilus. And why did he write it? Somebody say it. I heard, I heard it. Seize the day. Thank you. Woo. All right, say, uh, on the count of three, say, seize the day. One, two, three. Seize the day. Seize the day. So, so he's telling the Gentiles, listen, you need to seize the day in which you live. And by the Holy Spirit, he's telling us in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of racial uncertainty, and all of the uncertainties of our lives, he's going, church, listen, don't, don't be back on your heels on this. Listen, seize the day. Seize the day. And then Acts 1.8 is that key verse, right? I'll say it for you. If you haven't gotten seized the day, some of you have not memorized Acts 1.8, but you should be, right? The, the, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, right? He says, I, I will send the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit will come upon you, and I will make you, right, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise of God, and he's doing that as we look at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's on the screens because I'm being nice, uh, but if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, many of you have heard those verses before. They've been preached many times before. They are key verses, often in talking about the life of the church. But what I want us to do this morning is step back and try to see the what in that. I want you to be amazed by the reality of this text. And so I'm going to ask a question, and I actually want to elicit a response, right? So some response from you this morning as to what in that text amazes you, causes you to go, what the most? No wrong answers. There's lots in the text that can make us do that. But uh, what, what is it in that text that makes you go, what the most? Selling Say? Selling their possessions, right? Whoa. Wait, yeah, that's, that's next week. Ready? You ready? We're going to get to that next week. They sell their possessions so that all would be satisfied and, and, and have a need. Good. What else? Fellowship, yes. And we'll understand what that really means. It doesn't mean get together for a chicken dinner, right, uh, in, in doing it. So they were in fellowship with one another. What else? Miracles were happening, right? So the, the, the apostles are doing it. I love all of these answers. We'll get to all these. You still haven't hit mine for today. They had everything in common. What? That they were devoted to the teaching. We're going to get to that today, but that's not where I'm headed. Man, you guys are good. You're pulling all of them out, but... Yeah, there was... Thanks, my wife reads me, right? She's got me, right? Listen, do you see the last statement in that text? 
They were adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, you don't look terribly amazed by that. Let me, let me give you some perspective. Imagine this. Next week I stand up and say, hey, I've got great news. I'd like to introduce you to seven people here this morning who have been saved this week because someone from this body has lived out the gospel or told the gospel, shared the gospel with someone. And here's seven people that are new to the kingdom of God. You'd go, holy cow, I go to this church, right? <laughs> that would be awesome, right? <clears throat> so a bit of perspective, I've been here two years. I know that's a long time for some of you, right? I've been here two years. I can't say confidently in two years that this ministry has seen seven people come to Jesus. Two years. I don't think we've seen seven people come to Jesus. Seven people come to Jesus, right? So hear this, right? Day by day. Like Monday, somebody came to know Jesus. Tuesday, a handful came to know Jesus. Wednesday. And and as they gathered, they realized that day by day, God was adding to their number. What? Right? I don't want to say that in a a condemning way. I, I want to say that in a way that helps us understand the amazement of what's going on. 120 people in a room turns to 3,120 after a sermon. And then to exponential growth as the Lord added to their number daily. Now, I'm assuming that even the Gentiles who are reading this 40 years later have seen a slowdown in the conversion rate. So even to them, this is a bit astounding. Maybe even going, what? But it should cause all of us to ask a question. A really important question. Maybe the point. How is this happening? And how do we seize the day in our context to see this happen again? Well, there are two things here that I think we must see to answer the question of how is this happening, which is something we will be talking about over the next couple weeks. So I really want you to get this. First of all is this. The community of Christians are offering a compelling reason to believe in Jesus. Why are people coming to Jesus day by day? Is because there is a Christian community that is offering a compelling reason to believe in Jesus. Notice that our text says nothing about evangelism. It says nothing about the fact that they went out to tell people about Jesus. In fact, if you look at our text, it's all about what's happening in the life of the church that is compelling for outsiders to want to come. Right? First, the community of Christians is offering a compelling reason to believe in Jesus. Second, the community of Christians are living in an obedience that God is honoring by adding to them daily. You good uh, Reformed Presbyterians know, right, that when we come to salvation, it is not by our choice prominently. It is by God's choice that he's called us as his children, and we have responded in such way to respond to his call that we have come become Christians. And so the reality that there are being numbers being added to their number daily is really the work of God. But why is God doing it and sending them to this church? It's because they are ready, we'll see, they are ready to receive them. There's a compelling Christian community and there's an obedient Christian community. And because of that, their numbers are growing daily. 
So then the question becomes, what kind of community offers a compelling reason to believe in Jesus, and at the same time is a community that is obedient to God that he might bring people to in order to add to that number? What makes a culture, what would make Sharon look at Covenant Church and go, what? In the sense of what the heck is going on there? And quite frankly, I want some of that. With me? I really need you to be with me in those things because we're going to build on those over the next couple of weeks. Here we go. The rest of this morning, we're going to look at the fact that, listen, a learning community is a community that is compelling and obedient. A learning community is a community that is compelling and obedient. Look at the first eight words of our text. And somebody mentioned it today. Here's here's an amazing thought. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to What made them compelling? What made them obedient? It was their devotion to the apostles' teaching. What does devotion mean? Some of you old schoolers out there still love the King James. I love that you love the King James. That's good, right? Uh, New King James, you will read in your Bibles this morning that they are continuing steadfastly. I like that. Uh, devotion is translated there, continuing Steadfastly. One thing I want to make sure is that continuing steadfastly is not just a check the box I read my Bible, right? But that I continue steadfastly with passion, uh, with love, right? And, and there's a passionate love in this continuous. So get this the 3,120 people gathered now as the church are continuing steadfastly with great love and passion for the apostles' teaching. Well, what would have been the apostles' teaching? Well, if Peter is any example in chapter 2, it would be how the Old Testament is coming true in the days in which they live. The fulfillment of Jesus as Christ in his death and resurrection and a message to repent and be baptized. That's been the message that they have heard. That is the apostles' teaching. My guess is that as they split out, as they begin to discuss this in their homes, as we see it, it would be very much the same. Listen, God told us this would happen. He told us that Jesus would come, and he has. That was that guy you crucified, but don't worry about that. The reality is that because he's crucified and risen again, you have life. And they're going, oh, that's good news. That's the apostles' teaching. So 12 guys inspired by the Holy Spirit now teaching over 3,000 people, but even more is 3,000 people hungry for the Word of God, devoted to this teaching. So let me ask you a difficult question this morning. A question that I have to ask myself, right? If today I sat in front of a table in front of you and I put on it a newspaper, um, a good novel, I like Tom Clancy, right? Good Tom Clancy novel. Uh, maybe a good J.I. Packer book, Knowing God, and the Bible. And I said, which one are you drawn to, honestly? Which one do you really want to pick up? You're not in church. The preacher's not watching. In your gut, which one are you drawn to? Which one are you devoted to? In fact, if I asked you, listen, uh, be careful how you pick because we've been watching you. And we actually know what you pick up more than not. So now, which one is it that you pick up? Which, which one, you don't have to answer out loud, right? Which one would you be drawn to? 
if, if indeed we told you we were, locked, this is 2020, right? So what, if we indeed asked you, uh, we told you that we were logging your uh, computer use and your TV watching, right? And, and we said, hey, uh, we, we've, we've been watching. How is it that you are spending your time? What is it that you are devoted to? Would it be shows and this and that and sundry other things that you watch? Or would it be the reality that you're working on your own edification, your own sanctification by the very things that you're taking in? What are you devoted to? Listen to me. I, those other things aren't bad. I'm not, I'm not after newspapers, Tom Clancy or J.I. Packer, right? I, I'm not after your computer use as long as it's within moral guidelines, right? Or, or the reality of the fact that you watch some good TV show. I, I'm not condemning those things. I'm just asking you, what are you devoted to? Because it tells us here in Acts chapter 2 that this group of 3,120 people were devoted, continuing steadfastly with passion to the apostles' teaching. Listen, I'm even willing to be a bit self-critical, asking us to be critical together about the devotion that we have as a church to the apostles' teaching. I'm thrilled that at Covenant Church, if I wasn't preaching the Word of God, someone would politely come up, lead me off the stage, boot me out, and say, see you next week. All right? When you want to preach the Word of God, you can come back, but until you want to preach the Word of God, you're not, you're not welcome here. I, I love the fact that I have a, a church that loves expository preaching, that we can walk through books together and cover hard things together in, in doing that. I love the fact that we have a church that has small groups that uh, on their own, in their homes, dig into the Word of God or to resources that point them to the Word of God. I love all that, but I think it's a good question to ask, are we really devoted to the apostles' teaching? even as a church. I can tell you that as a Christian culture in America, the church is not a compelling community when it comes to our devotion to the Word of God. A lot of statistics that would show that, but I'll give you only one. George Barna is a well-respected statistician, source for snapshots of American church culture. And, and this is the church, the picture of Bible engagement in 2019. So read with me if you can see that. Bible-centered. So they, they, they get on the phone, they interview a number of people who are uh, churchgoers, evangelical believers, and they're saying, they're asking them questions about their reading of the Bible. And they've discovered that 5% of them are Bible-centered. That means they interact with the Bible frequently. It is transforming their relationships and shaping their choices, 5%. 19% were Bible engaged. It means they interact with the Bible frequently. It is transforming their relationship with God and others. 19% are Bible friendly, interact with the Bible consistently. It may be a source of spiritual insight and wisdom. My math's not good, 38.5 is 43% are at least reading their Bible. Bible neutral, interact with the Bible sporadically. It has little spiritual influence but that influence may be growing. And then this, Bible disengaged. Interact with the Bible infrequently, if at all, it has minimal impact on their lives. What? Folks, that's not a compelling picture. 
If I'm an unbeliever and you're telling me the Bible is the very source of your life, I'm not convinced. So if we're honest, we have to admit that maybe our own lives, maybe our lives as a church, as covenant church, is not compelling. But my goal today is not to depress you. (laughs) Say amen, right? My goal today is not to depress you. It's not even to guilt you into reading your Bible. I'm not going to start calling you every week and asking you about reading your Bible because what that will do will cause you to check a box. Yes, I read my Bible. This is what uh, a confession moment I do often, right? So I'm in a Bible reading plan, and I go through and I read all the places that I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I do that every year, and the reality is I go through, and sometimes at the end I'm going like, what did I just read? Right? So I'm not here to guilt you into doing it because then it becomes check the box. What I, what I want to share with the remainder of our time this morning is maybe how it is that this first church was wooed, wooed into being devoted to the apostles' teaching. What did they see that we might see together this morning? Real quickly, the first thing I think they see is that it's a source of hope. It's a source of hope. They would have been a very familiar with the Old Testament. So a couple things in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 22, you don't have to turn there this morning, but it might be a good passage to read later on in the day. 2 Kings 22, there's this young Israelite king named Josiah, and he was a good king of Israel. And as he was making orders for the temple to be repaired, uh, they find the book of the law, which would have been the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that had been lost, had been forgotten. And in repairing the temple, they find it, and it's being read to Josiah, and Josiah, in hearing the word, tears his clothes. Why? Because as he hears it, he hears the incredible gap between his life and what the book of the law is saying. And it's a place of mourning for him. But as they read, they also read the reality of the promises of God. (laughs) that God is faithful, that God is good, and that God indeed is providing a plan that even you, Josiah, uh, can be reconciled with this God. They didn't know Jesus yet, but the reality is is that was coming, and so there was praise in Josiah's life. And so, so much so that he called everybody together, right? Like, all of Israel, come listen to this, right? And they were likewise torn to the heart, but encouraged by virtue of the reality of the good news of this. The same thing happens in Nehemiah 8, right? So the temple has been destroyed, and Nehemiah and Ezra come to to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, and Ezra in Nehemiah 8 gathers everyone that is involved in rebuilding the temple and the wall around Jerusalem, and he reads the book of the law, to which the people get all Pentecostal on them. Right? They, they weren't Presbyterian in Nehemiah 8. So it says when he read the law, and, and get this, right? Uh, some of you are going, man, I had to stand a long time this morning for praise and worship. Listen, they stood as they read the first five books of the Old Testament. And at the end, they went, I'm glad that's over. No, at the end, they raised their hands, it said, I know it's a crazy thought, right? And went, Amen! Amen! And they worshiped, and then they fell on their faces, and they worshiped God as if to say, give me more. This was their devotion to this word. David, in Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, proclaims the value and the richness of the word 
along with a call to love it, to depend on it, to be devoted to it as the only source of hope in our world. And certainly as Peter preaches and references the Old Testament in Acts chapter 2 and its fulfillment in Jesus who is the Christ, he proclaims, though you were active in killing him, you must know that his death was for your life and that the only, listen, only hope that you have is in his life and surrender to his word. And so, Christian, it should be for us Oh, that we would arrive at a place that his word as our hope would be the very thing that we long for, the very thing that we hunger for, the very thing that we thirst for day and night. That as Psalm 119 says, that it would be a lamp unto our feet, right? You know this. And a light unto our path. That our only hope is in this word. Is a source of hope. Secondly, it's a source of unity. It's a source of unity. I know that we live in a day that it seems to be more cool to be disunified than unified, but I have to believe that at our core, we understand that to find a place to agree is going to take us further in life than living in a place of disagreement. At our core, we have to realize that finding a place that we can agree is going to take us further than living in a place in which we disagree. That no matter what we feel about COVID and mass, that we at our core really care about one another, that we would find ourselves being gracious to one another to be unified together, that our nation's history of racism should cause us to repent and to strive to move again toward being the one race that God has created us to be, regardless of skin color. And, and doesn't the Bible move us there? Think about the diversity of the crowd that is in Jerusalem at Pentecost. We've, we've talked about this even among the disciples, right? Among the 12, there's Simon the Zealot, who's given his life to oppose the government. Patriot, not going to wear his mask, right? And, and then you have Matthew, who's given his life in service of the government. Corruptly, put your mask on. And guess what? Guess what brings them together? The Word of God. The word of Christ brings them that they might move together to do what is right and good. That's just among the 12. Think about the 3,120 people. If you go back to Acts 2, you'll find that they come from a dozen nations. Yes, they were black and white and everything in between. They were of all ethnicities, all races. They were from countries that hated one another. But what did they find? That when the word of God, when they were devoted to the authority of the apostles' teaching, that they became one. This word. You know, we prayed today, right, that this nation would be one. That seems like, Rick, what are you talking about? Can that even happen? I'm saying, heck yeah. It has. This Bible is a source of hope. It is a source of unity. And get this, it is a source of changed lives. I think we must believe that as the 3,120 exponentially grow, that much of that growth comes through a spirit-filled understanding of God's word. So yes, it is the spirit of God that allows us to see something that we've read 20 times and yet see it anew. But it is still the power of the spirit that's inspiring the word of God that brings about that change. As, as people in the first century are hungering for God's word, they're being changed by it. 
and they're being added daily to the number that are being saved. I think of Lee Strobel. Some of you know Lee Strobel's story or Josh McDowell's story. Both atheists uh, vehemently against God and His Word. And so they actually went to the Word of God to prove that it had holes and messes and inconsistencies so that they could prove that God doesn't exist. And both of those men in their study of God's Word <laughs> got saved. And now they're strong, authoritative voices in the Christian evangelical world of the reality of the authority of this Word to change lives. Tom Clancy doesn't change lives. J.I. Packer doesn't change lives. This book the authority of the apostles' teaching and our devotion to it changes our lives. You say, well, I'm already saved. It's already done that. Yeah, it has, but you're not done, and God is not done with you. He's constantly, in my life, peeling back the onion skins as I read his word that I might know him more and know myself better, that I might see the glorious truth of the gospel, that I might hunger and thirst more in being devoted to this teaching. A final story. A story that I think is great to illustrate the reality of the what, right? A man in Kansas City was severely injured in an explosion a number of years back, and there's an evangelist, his name was Robert Sumner, um, that has written a book called The Wonders of the Word of God, and he writes about this man whose uh, face was badly disfigured, he lost his eyesight as well as both hands. But he was just a brand new Christian. And one of his greatest disappointments after the explosion was that he could no longer read the Bible. Then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips, and it went ding, 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 ding. How about that? That's cool. So I'll learn how to read Braille with my lips. And he ordered the entire Bible in Braille. But when he got it and as he began to learn, he realized that the nerve endings even in his lips were uh, numbed to the point that he couldn't feel it. And he was devastated until one day, as he was desperately trying to read God's Word, he caught a piece of the Braille with his tongue. And he went, ah, I can feel with my tongue. And so he began to read the Bible in Braille with his tongue. And at the point in which Sumner writes his book, this man had read through the entire Bible four times with his tongue. Why? Because it was his only source of hope. It was his only source that was going to connect him with Christian brothers and sisters to be one with them as the church. And it was the only source that was going to change his life, that he might understand better who he was and who his God was. He was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Oh, that, that, that I might be that hungry for the Word of God. That I might be that thirsty for the Word of God. That we as His church might be that hungry, that thirsty to devote ourselves to the teaching of the world, that the, or the Word, that the world might look at us, that the world might look at His church and go, what? <laughs> J.I. Packer as I close, says the healthy Christian is not necessarily the extrovert, ebullient Christian 
but the Christian who has a sense of God's presence stamped deep on his soul, who trembles at God's word, who lets it dwell in him richly by constant meditation upon it, and who tests and reforms his life daily in response to it. The healthy Christian, in short, is he who is devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. Church, that we might be a compelling community, that we might indeed be an obedient community, that once again sees people being saved day by day for his glory. Let's pray. God, may it be so in Rick Stoffer's life. May it be so in our lives. May it be so in Covenant Church's life. Uh, that it wouldn't be the extra thing to do. It wouldn't be the secondary thing to do. But our lives would be given primarily to being devoted to your word. That we might be changed and that you might be glorified. In some way, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh upon us even this day? That, that you would help us to go one step further in that journey. We all come at it from different places. You know that. You know our hearts today. But that today might inspire us, that you and your word might inspire us in being devoted to your teaching. Not, not that we become all Bible scholars, but that we just take the next step. Maybe it's just today praying, God, make me hungry for your word. that indeed, God, you would cause us to hunger and thirst for it. That you would take your church and you would make her again alive. Compelling and obedient. That the church might rise in this troubled world with answers that come from being devoted to your word. May that be so, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.